For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Okay, we're going to be looking at a couple chapters, 2 Corinthians 8 and uh, 9. To set the stage here, one of the things that was happening during this time was Paul put together a collection for the believers in Jerusalem. And we know that during the reign of Emperor Claudius, around the late 40s, early 50s, that there was a famine that basically decimated Israel. And so many of the believers in Jerusalem were impoverished. And what Paul did was he put together a collection among the believers in Greece, which included Corinth, and also throughout Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey, in order to help the needs of the, the Jerusalem believers. So he launches into this discussion about generosity because the Corinthians apparently had pledged a large amount of money and said, put us down for X amount of money for this collection. And so Paul wants to send Titus to go and grab this collection that they had pledged. So from this, we're able to, I think, answer a few questions that we want to talk about tonight. Paul is able to, to give us some answers on why should we give, what does it look like, and um, how should we give. So I want to take these down sort of topically because otherwise we're going to be meandering through the passage and it gets a little bit con confusing. So why don't we begin with this question, why should we give? I think the main force behind why we should give is the grace of God. And Paul makes this explicit in verse 1, chapter 8. Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. This word grace in Greek is the word charis. And it simply means an unmerited gift. That's actually where we get the word charity from. So what he's talking about here is the grace that God gives to us. God is actually a generous God. He's not stingy, holding back from us, trying to keep back good things from us. Instead, he's a God who wants to lavish us with good things. And as a result, God's goodness should drive our generosity. You know, when you look at other churches, sometimes they will suggest that the reason you should give is because God will judge you or punish you if you don't give generously. For example, they'll look at passages in the Old Testament like Malachi 3.8, where God's confronting the nation of Israel for failing to tithe, which was giving 10% of their, of their income, where God says, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how did we rob you? And God responds, you rob my, my tithes and offerings. Apparently, the Jerusalem or the Israelite people were, were unwilling to give their 10%, which the law required. And so a lot of preachers will look at this passage or cite it and say, see, if you don't give generously, God is going to be angry. You're robbing him of what's due to him. Yet we have to understand the context here. This is in the Old Testament. And the Israelites were under the Old Covenant. 
As we explain really throughout this book, God has established a new covenant under what Jesus has done. And so we're no longer under the Old Testament law. Instead, we're under God's grace through what Jesus has done. Others would argue that the reason why you should give is because when you give, God will bless your finances. He'll actually make you richer. And this is uh, sometimes called the prosperity gospel or health and wealth. And again, they go back to Malachi looking at passages like 310, which says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have any room for it. Again, we need to remember the situation there. The Israelites were failing to give their 10% to the storehouse of Israel, which fed the priests. You know, the priests were working full time for God. Managing the temple. So when the Israelites failed to give, a lot of these priests were serving in the temple, but then also going out into the fields and farming because they couldn't make ends meet. So God was saying to them, look, if you guys are faithful, watch what I'll do to this storehouse. It's going to be filled. That means... God wasn't giving an individual promise to the Israelites. He was promising to the nation of Israel that he would take care of them. So a lot of these prosperity gospel preachers are taking this passage out of context. Not to mention, if wealth is actually an indication of spirituality, why was Jesus so poor? So what, he, he wasn't spiritual? What about the apostles who most of their lives following Christ were living in abject poverty, living as vagrants? Were they unspiritual because they didn't have wealth? What we see here is that, you know, God wants us, first of all, to give of ourselves to the Lord and um, then... And, and then to us in keeping with God's will, according to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 5. So what God wants, first of all, is for us to give ourselves to him. Now, if you're new here, maybe you're not a Christian, let's just make this clear up front. We don't want you to give anything, okay? We're not, op- we're not asking you to open up your wallets tonight to give. Instead, you know, God wants to give you something. When you look at the Bible, the central theme that runs throughout the Bible is the grace of God, as we've mentioned. That there's something wrong with the world that we live in. I mean, a a casual observation into history will tell you that things aren't the way they ought to be. And the Bible tells us that the reason why things are so messed up in this world is because of uh, human free will and choice. That we have decided against God, we've rebelled against him, and as a result, the world is messed up. And in addition to this, God says that because of our moral wrongdoing, we owe God a tremendous moral debt. But that in God's generosity and love, he actually took on the constraints of humanity, setting aside the utility of his divine attributes, 
And by coming as a man, he suffered death on a cross in order to pay for the moral debt we deserve to pay ourselves. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. God set aside his heavenly privileges to weigh down in the mire with us, experiencing for the first time moral evil. And he did this because he loves us, because he wanted to give us grace, a free gift. So this then becomes the driving force behind our generosity. It's not because we're afraid that God's going to judge us. It's not because when we give God money, he's going to multiply it into great riches in this life. He does it because, or we should give because God has given us so much. So out of the overflow of thanksgiving that we feel toward God and what he's done for us, we want to be able to give others to others. In addition to this, we should give because others have needs as well. We see in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 13 and 14, Paul says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. So, <clears throat> we should be clear here. Paul isn't calling for some sort of commune for us to live in, where nobody owns their property we have to basically give all of our personal possessions into the community pot. Uh, instead, um, he's talking about us being able to share our resources to break down the disparity between the rich and poor believers. You know, you look at passages like Acts 4 verse 34. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give those in need. Some theologians look at this passage and say, see, the early church gives us an example of this com communistic way of life where nobody owned anything. They sold all of their property and gave it to the apostles for the common good. But we also see examples, for example, of a chapter later where Peter confronts this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, because they sold a plot of land and said that they gave all the money to the church, but actually had withheld some of that money. So they were lying. They were being hypocritical. Peter says to them in Acts 5 verse 4, the property was yours to sell or not to sell as you wished. After all, selling it, the money was all, always yours to give. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but you were lying to God. Notice he says, the property was yours to sell. We weren't forcing you to do this. So, in God's community, we, we can hold personal property, but one of the things that God wants is to break down this big gap between the rich and the poor. He's really trying to minimize the disparity between rich and poor believers. We see in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 12, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, 
but it's also overflowing in the many expressions of thanks to God. The intent of this is that we meet the needs of God's people. It's difficult, I think, for us as believers living in America to understand the kind of poverty that people live in all across the world. Take this for example, in 2013, 19.5% of children in developing countries were living in households that survived on an average of $1.90 a day or less per person. Now, that number, $1.90, it's adjusted for purchasing power parity. In other words, the same dollar in America purchases this, the same amount of rice in the third world. So they make that adjustment so it's a realistic number. So these people are living under $2 a day. I remember a number of years ago when I went to Cambodia, I was talking to my translator who was probably considered rich by Cambodian standards, and this guy was making like $10 a day. And I asked him, I said, so before you were a translator, what were you doing? He said, oh, I did construction. I said, how much did you make a day? He said, about a dollar. And that was, that was pretty normal. So the rest of the world, they're living in totally different conditions, unimaginable conditions compared to us. Look at this. This is the child world poverty statistic. And, of course, there are a few things on there. But the one that's really striking, really shocking, is the one on top there, which shows that one billion children live in poverty. Nearly half of all children on earth are living in poverty. So when you look at something like that, Knowing that there are brothers and sisters in Christ living in those kinds of conditions, does it make sense for us to simply live our lives consuming with any, without any concern for the needs of those who we would call our brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, you might think to yourself, well, I'm not that wealthy. I'm a poor college student. That's probably true. You know, if you live at the poverty level, which is about $23,000 a year as a household income, you are at still the top 3% of wealthiest people on earth. Well, you might say, well, I make like 10 G's a year. Still, that's still top 5%. One thing that you don't account for is the certification or the degree that you're trying to earn will catapult you into the top 1% of wealthiest people in the world once you graduate. Once you earn $55,000 or more as a household, you are among the, the richest people on earth at that point. Now, the question that I think comes to mind is this. Why would God put us in such a privileged situation? Why would he do this? Is it because we're so much better than the people throughout the world? Is it that we're more deserving than them? Is it because we've earned what we have, the privileges that we have? Maybe the reason why God has put us in this situation is because he's positioned us 
to take care of the needs of the rest of the world. That he's given us immense wealth and affluence to be able to take care of the needs of, the, of our brothers and sisters who are struggling throughout the world. Another reason why we should give, God meets our needs. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So God wants to take care of our basic needs and that he actually wants to give us more so that we could give generously. Now, I think it's difficult for us sometimes to differentiate our needs and our wants because when we watch a commercial or an advertisement, we think to ourselves, I need that. I need the new iPhone X. I need that new pair of shoes. But <clears throat> when you think about your basic needs, you can break them down into, really boil it down to basic categories, shelter, food, clothes, basic clothes, and maybe some transportation, right? I remember a number of years ago, my son and I went to go hang out with my friend and his kids, and me and my friend were like talking, and a fight broke out between my, my son, who at the time was about four years old, with my friend's young daughter. And he walked over to her and just, he saw she had a toy, he just strong-armed her for this toy, and just walked away, callously. <laughs> And of course, you know, she started crying and stuff. So she ran up to us while we were talking, me and my friend, and appealed to us saying, you know, he took my toy. And so I called my son over. I was like, Julius, come over here. And, you know, he's clutching the toy. I said, did you take that from her? He said, yeah. <laughs> I said, well, you know, you should give that back to her. And so he reluctantly gave that to her. And, you know, of course, he started to burst into tears, too. And he just kept saying this refrain, I need that. I need that. And my friend's five-year-old son ran over and he turned to Julius. He said, he said, Julius, you don't need that. You want it. <laughs> I thought to myself, that's a good point. <laughs> well said. You know, I think a lot of times we mistake what we want as something we need. And so it's important for us to see that God wants us, he wants to provide for us. But he wants to provide for us, as my friend would say, on the need level, not on the greed level, right? He wants to take care of our basic needs. And God also says that he'll supply us with more to give. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10 and 11, he says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you will be generous on every occasion as though as through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. God, when he sees us faithfully giving the money he's entrusted to us will actually give us more not so that we can hoard that for ourselves not so that we could send, spend it frivolously but so that we can give it to other people in need also it transforms our heart and leads us to spiritual growth 
Look what he says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7. Just as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Notice how he throws giving sort of in the same bin as some of these things we would consider crucial for spiritual growth. Faith, knowledge, love. You know, imagine if you were talking to somebody, a friend, and you asked them, so how do you think your relationship with God is going? Feel like it's progressing? And they're like, yeah, you know, pretty good, considering I don't know if I actually believe in God. Be like, whoa, that's, no, you need faith if you want to grow with God, right? Likewise, if we want to grow with God, we need to start on this process of generosity. You see, Paul sees generosity as a catalyst for spiritual growth, just like faith, knowledge, and love. Jesus, in Matthew 6, verse 21, says, For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. In other words, where you invest, that's where your heart will, will start to gravitate toward. I like how Randy Alcorn takes this statement from Jesus And he updates it. He says, show me your checkbook, your credit card statement, and I'll show you where your heart is. In other words, you can tell what people value by what they spend their money on. Where you invest tells you a lot about where your heart is. Maybe another way to think about this is that where you invest your money actually starts to transform the way that you think. You know how that is. You're working on a project or something that's really hard, and you invest tons of time and resources and energy, both mental and emotional energy, into this thing, and then it fails. You're crushed. You're devastated by that, right? It's because you've invested so much into this that you actually care. And likewise, when you invest your money into the things of God, it actually starts to change your values. You know, when you spend time with God and you talk to him about his character and what he's done for you, it actually starts to change the way that you look at the world. It shapes your view of reality. So that you actually start to see the world the way he sees it. You start to value the things that he values. You start to want to give sacrificially in the way that he gives sacrificially because it's it's inherent to his nature and his character. Okay, let's answer this second question. What does it look like? First of all, it's sacrificial. Look at how Paul talks about the Corinthians, I mean the the Macedonians, and how they exerted themselves to give. He says, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. I mean, these guys, they were not wealthy, says that they were impoverished, and yet they exerted themselves to give generously. They didn't look at their circumstances and say, well, I don't have that much money. I, I, I'm going to wait till I have more. 
No, they were, they were scrounging around trying to find something that they could give. What about in verse 4? Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. It implies that Paul at one point was like, look guys, I'm really, I'm really impressed with your zeal and your intensity. But we need to, we need to back it off a little bit. You guys are, are going a little bit too hard. A little too hardcore here. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul telling you, you know, I think you're going a little bit too far with this. <laughs> Might be a little bit too fanatical. I mean, that, that indicates how much they were sacrificing. So this kind of giving that God talks about is a sacrificial type of giving. That it's the type of giving that actually starts to cut into your lifestyle. Some of us might say, well, I'm going to start giving when I have more money. Or I need to get out of debt before I start giving. I think these, these are valid concerns that we often feel. We look at the debt that's ever mounting because of our student loans. And we think to ourselves, I'm just under this mountain of debt. And so what God expects for me to give? Or... We feel like, okay, I'm broke right now, but when I do get some money, then I'm going to start giving. But it's important for you to realize that giving, like anything else in the spiritual life, requires a certain level of discipline. If you set out to make it a goal to learn the Bible well, and yet you never set out time each day to, to spend time studying the Bible, guess what? Over the course of years, you're never going to really learn the Bible well. Likewise, if you say, I really want to improve my prayer life, but you never make time to pray, then you're never going to really see much difference in your prayer life over, over a period of time. Likewise, when it comes to giving, there needs to be sort of a regimented approach to giving. Otherwise, you're only going to give whenever you feel like it. And guess what? You're never going to feel like you should give. So... <clears throat> We need to, to start small. And I remember facing this as a young believer, somebody saying to me, you should start giving. And I'm like, I don't have any money. And they said, it doesn't matter how much you give, just, just start, no matter how, how small it is. And so I started giving a small amount. And I noticed each year I would, I would get excited about giving a little bit more and a little bit more. And it became sort of a habit. Not to mention, you would think that if you have more money, that you're going to be more charitable. But according to this study, those who are in the lowest income bracket in America actually give the most amount of money, proportionately. So those earning an average income of about $10,000 to $19,000 a year give about 4.3%. Now look at the highest bracket. Those who make $160,000 or more on into probably the millions of dollars give only 2.1%. Yes, they give more money, but proportionately they're not giving as much as those who are the poorest. So having more money isn't a guarantee that you're going to be more generous. So the thought that, okay, when I get more, 
then I'll be generous, doesn't necessarily fit reality. Also, we should give with joy. Think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And again in 9, verse 7, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So when you look at what he's saying here, he's telling us we shouldn't give just because we see other people give. That's a bad motive. I guess everybody else is giving. I should give too. That's groupthink. Shouldn't do that, right? We certainly shouldn't give because someone compelled us to give. You should give. This is super important that we're doing it because we feel we're, we're under pressure to give. And we shouldn't give reluctantly either. Where we feel like, well, I guess I get, I'll give. I don't really want to. You know what God probably thinks when we tell him, all right, well, here you go, God. I guess I'll do this. God's like, dude, I, keep your money. I don't want that. Have you looked around, pal? I created everything here. I don't need your money. You know, from God's perspective, when he looks at our giving, it's kind of like us offering a guy who owns an entire beach, a grain of sand. Merry Christmas, God. <laughs> He's just like, what am I supposed to do with that? That's nothing to me. You know, God wants us to give primarily because it's an opportunity for us to participate in the great work that he's doing throughout the world. You know, God gives us the privilege of impacting people's lives eternally with a currency that will contain no value in the next life. It's actually a really good investment if you think about it. We're taking something that, that's going to be worthless, meaningless, and God can actually use that and multiply it in a way that will impact the rest of eternity. In other words, you can give money now to God's purposes, and that money God can take and change the landscape, the topography of eternity with your money. I think we're going to be surprised what little we gave and how much God was able to yield from that. People who are going to come up to us, people we've never met before, from countries we've never even heard of, say to us, in part, your contribution was helpful in me hearing about the message of Christ. In part, your contribution helped feed my family when we were about to starve. Also, we should give with thanksgiving. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 12, that service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but also is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. And again, in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So there's this sense of joy and excitement about giving. Now, that seems counterintuitive. How can you be excited about peeling open your wallet and forking over some money to someone else? Well, I believe that as we become more and more like God, that's what spiritual growth is all about. It's about us 
becoming more Christ-like. And as we become more Christ-like, we take on the very nature of God. God is a sacrificial God. That's, that's part of who he is. That's why he sent his son Jesus. And he did that, not reluctantly, he did it with joy and excitement. And so likewise, as we start to give, it becomes more and more enjoyable over time, thinking about the kind of impact it can make in people's lives. Actually, God considers giving a form of worship. In our, in our American uh, you know, in many American churches today, people think of worship as singing worship, almost exclusively. And yet the New Testament actually offers a broader definition of worship that it's not just something you do Sunday, on Sunday morning for a couple hours. It's something you do with your entire life. That worship is giving your life to God, and that includes giving generously to his cause. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 18. He says, I'm amply supplied now that, now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent. They're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So when we decide to give sacrificially, God views that as a type of worship, a sacrifice that's pleasing. And also, an overflowing gratitude toward God actually fuels Christian generosity. You see a lot of non-Christian people who are very generous. And there are probably some non-Christian people, maybe many, I don't know, who are more generous than some Christians. And yet one of the things that's unique about Christianity is that we have a basis for generosity, a motivation that comes from what God has done for us. When we look at all that God has done for us, it makes it incredibly difficult to cling on to our money and possessions. If we truly understand what he's done for us, when we let that sink in, the sacrifices that he made for us, out of the overflow of gratitude we feel, we end up giving generously. Finally, how should we give? First of all, we should only give to accountable groups. Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 17 says, For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he's coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. The Corinthians, they knew who Titus was. They knew his character. They knew his integrity. So Paul says, we're sending somebody to you that we know you trust. You've seen his way of life. You know he's not trying to make money by serving you. I remember the first time... I met my uh, spiritual mentor, guy who mentored me. You know, he uh, was rattling up in his 1995 Honda Civic. You know, the muffler was dragging on the ground as he was, you know, running late to teach this Bible study. And as I got to know him, um, I would frequently, you know, jump into the car with him to go to the convenience store or something like that. And I would get in there and I would just start scoffing at him like, look at this piece of crap that you're driving in. Why, why don't you get a better car? And he would, just, he would just defend how awesome his car is. He was like, this thing has air conditioning. He's like, it's, it's got a CD player. He says it, it gets to 75 miles per hour eventually. 
And he said, you know, the best part is it gets 35 miles to the gallon. I'm like, dang, that's awesome. <laughs> but, you know, I would just endlessly mock him about this. And it was funny because he drove this thing for yet another five years after it started leaking gas. And he did this calculation where he thought to himself, okay, I'm still getting 30 miles to the gallon in this car, so I might as well keep driving it as long as I can. And I remember one time when he had this gas leak jumping into the car with him, and the fumes were so strong. I thought it was going to pass out, but I was like, this is dangerous. We're like, we're like a rolling Molotov cocktail. <laughs> you know, I was like afraid to like light up a cigarette in his car because I just thought the whole thing would just explode. But it was almost like this game that he would play to try to keep, the, you know, revive this thing and keep it on life support as long as he possibly could. You know, we would park in a, in a parking garage and, you know, somebody would open up their car door into his and, you know, he didn't care. He's just like, oh, it just kind of adds to the patina, you know. <laughs> But one thing was obvious about him was even though he was the senior pastor of this church, I knew for a fact that he wasn't living for money. You know, if you ever visit his place, there's no question. He's serving God because he cares about the things of God, not because he wants to be rich. So it's important that we give to an organization we trust. Also in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 18, Paul says, and we're sending along with him a brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. So it wasn't good enough that, you, that Paul was sending a guy who they knew and trusted. He wanted to make sure that there was also somebody there to hold him accountable since he was handling so much money. He says, we want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we're taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. So it wasn't good enough that they felt good in their conscience that they weren't taking any money, that they had integrity. They wanted to make sure that the outside watching world looked at, looked at what they were doing and were unable to criticize them. You know, we've taken some measures along these lines. First of all, we have open, uh, open book policy and we, we do audits every several years. You may not know this, but churches don't need to report um, their finances to the IRS. That's, that's built into our law. And many churches decide that they don't want to open up their books to the public I really don't believe in that or think it's wise, especially because when you look out at our culture today, there's a lot of cynicism about the church and the way it handles its finances. If you've got nothing to hide, why not open up your books to the public? At Xenos, if you want to look at our books, we audit, we ask uh, a CPA, an uh, accounting firm to come in and audit our books every three years. So if you walked into our office and said, we, you know, I'd like a statement showing where all the money's going, we could provide you one from 2016, our last audit. And if you wanted more detail, we, we could get into the line items. We're not afraid because we know 
all the money we are spending is accounted for and going to the places where they, they were supposed to go. Secondly, there are double signatures on checks over $50. This is a pain. <laughs> I mean, we are an organization that has a budget. The total giving in our church is about $8 million, one-third of which goes to relief and development throughout the world. But think about an organization that big with an income stream that big having to, to double sign checks over $50. But we do that because we want to be scrupulous in the way that we handle our money. Also, there's an annual church-wide reporting and voting where we talk about our budget. And members of our church who are part of what we call the fiscal support team, numbering in the hundreds and even thousands, are able to participate in the process of moving forward with strategic initiatives that they can vote on. Also, we should give according to what we have. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 11 and 12, Paul says, Now finish the work so that you will be, your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to one, what one has, not according to what he does not have. So some churches you go to will say you need to tithe. That is, you need to give 10% of your income. But as you see right there in that passage, Paul had an opportunity to say, yeah, you should tithe, and yet he didn't. He said, you should just give according to what you have. That means it's a matter of conscience. And yet, <clears throat> Randy Alcorn points out this statistic uh, that the law was about 10 times more effective than grace. Even using 10% as a measure, the Israelites were four times more responsive to the, law, to the law of Moses than the average American Christian is to the grace of God. The average Christian gives about 2.5% of their income. He says, reread that last sentence and ask yourself, is something terribly wrong? So under the law, you're supposed to give 10%. And the average Christian today gives 2.5%, and yet they're under grace, not under law. Alcorn suggests that if the nation of Israel gave 10% under the law, he suggests that actually 10% should be the starting point for believers, since Jewish Christians were already used to 10%. So it's likely that many of the early believers were probably giving on the order of 15 or 20% of their income, which, I mean, that's mind-boggling. My friend, who had a family of uh, three at one point, uh, was making about $40,000. And it came out that he was giving 25% of his income. I mean, I was, I was uh, surprised by that. But, you know, I think that as your income grows, your giving should also grow. But, you know, what I really like to do, too, is I like to push my percentage points each year to try to really stretch my generosity. And, you know, over time, really, I look at my lifestyle and it doesn't really affect me that much. I feel like I've got plenty. I'm content with what I have. And yet, as my income grows, I find that as an opportunity to be able to give more and more to God's cause. Also, it should be finally as a pledge. 
He says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 2 and 3, For I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. In other words, you need to come through with your pledge. So in our fellowship, we allow people to pledge and at the end of the year, there is an agreement that you come through on your pledge. And it made sense that they would pledge money because it allowed the Corinthians to, to gather up enough cash over a period of time, which meant that they could give more to the cause. And so likewise, when we pledge, it allows our church to actually budget and make sure that we're not spending more than we're taking in from giving to be responsible. Okay, let's draw some conclusions. I think the first question we need to ask ourselves, are you a generous giver? In other words, are you stretching yourself sacrificially to give to God's cause? Secondly, are you a cheerful giver or are you a reluctant giver? Or maybe worse, you're doing it because you feel under compulsion. Those are all bad things. The reason you should give sacrificially is because of the grace of God. Because you're in touch with all that he's done for you. Finally, if God's grace hasn't reached your wallet, then it means that it hasn't fully pierced your heart. And so as we consider moving into the next year, you have an opportunity to give. And I'm not talking about just to our fellowship. You have an opportunity to give to work that others are doing across the world for Christ. I'd encourage you to do that. But the motivation needs to be the grace of God. So I would spend some time thinking and praying over what God has done, reflecting on that. And as you do so, ask God, how can I be more generous toward your work? All right, well, why don't we uh, just pray? God, we pray that you would cultivate in us a heart of generosity. We know that that's not our inclination. We like to grasp onto our money. We worry about our needs. We feel anxious about our finances. And so there is a tendency to want to hoard our money to ourselves. Pray that uh, we can see the world the way you see it, that we can see uh, just those who are living in poverty and um, those who are in need and, and see our money as, an, as a resource to be able to help others. And um, I am excited to see, Lord, in the end, what you've done with uh, what little we've given to you. And uh, I think you're going to surprise us. And finally, Lord, I pray for those of us who, you know, might be here and we don't have a relationship with you. I pray that we can receive the gift that you want to give to us and um, that those who feel maybe a sense that you're calling them, that they would uh, receive Christ's forgiveness. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.